Let's open with prayer. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the beauty of this weather. Thank you for the crispness in the air. The reminder that seasons change. And the reminder that you never change. You're always faithful. Thank you for calling us here today to worship you corporately in this place. It's your idea, Lord, for us to come together as one and lift up your name in praise. And you've promised that where we are, you'll be in our midst. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill this place. Just fill this room. Fill each of us here to overflowing with your love, with your peace, comfort, understanding. Most of all, Lord, with your presence. As we talk today about Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, our Lord, I just pray that you would make my words clear. If I say anything that is incorrect, Lord, correct it before it hits the ears. And if I say anything that's good or, or correct, Lord, you take the credit for it. I don't want any of the credit for that at all. It's all yours. Now go before us and, and prepare us for what you're going to do here among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at that ancient document that's called the Apostles' Creed. This is our third week uh, of the Apostles' Creed. And last week I asked that the, the uh, guest services team hand out to you this, which is a, a compilation of our beliefs as a church, as Renovation Vineyard Church, our values, uh, what our mission is, all of that. Each, each one of our uh, beliefs is footnoted with Scripture. And I think it's real important that you know what we as a church believe, that you know where we're coming from on issues, so that you might be able to make an educated uh, uh, decision about whether this is a church that you would like to be a part of. We want you to be. We encourage you to be. We invite you to be. But you can see what our mission statement is, what our beliefs are, and let me assure you, we're not going to change them. So if these aren't in line with what you believe, hang around and maybe you'll change your belief a little bit. Or let us help you find another place. We'll be happy to do that as well. The Apostles' Creed is important because it shows each of us the foundational beliefs of the church, not the renovation church or the Methodist church or the Catholic church or the Baptist church, the church, universal, uh, with no denomination attached. What we all believe, and we all have more in common than we do have differences. So as we go through the Apostles' Creed, we have three more weeks, I believe, after this week. As we go through the Apostles' Creed, 
remember that. Remember that it was written so that all believers, all Christians, all Christ followers throughout the world would know what the foundation of their belief is and where it's to be found. So with that in mind, let's talk about living with Jesus as Savior. And I want to talk, first of all, about that word Savior, what it means. Particularly what it means as Jesus as Savior. John 1.41 says, The first thing that Andrew did after he discovered Jesus as Messiah was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, We have found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. All throughout biblical history, God's people have been looking, hoping, wanting, waiting for Messiah to come. And now Andrew says, we found Messiah. So what does Messiah mean, that word? Well, in Scripture there are two commonly used terms for Jesus Christ. The first is Savior. The second is Lord. And over and over in Scripture the Bible describes Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Jesus Christ, now Christ is not his last name. Some people think oh, his first name is Jesus, his last name is Christ. Christ is not his name, it's a description. Jesus Christ actually means Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Savior. Shana, I'm so glad you finally got to do that song today. She's been wanting to do Jesus Messiah every week. And I said, hold off, hold off. We, 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 we're going to talk about Jesus in a couple of weeks. This would be a great time to do it. The word Messiah means divine Savior. Divine Savior. And Messiah is a Hebrew word that the Greeks, when translating, uh, when writing the Bible and translating the Old Testament, translated to the word Christos. Christos. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're actually saying Jesus Messiah or Jesus divine Savior. The disciples realized that Jesus was more than just a human. More than just a human. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully human. He was 100% man. But it also teaches that he was fully divine he was 100% God. Now, even in our new math, those two don't add up for us. But in God's math, it's possible for him to be 100% human, 100% God. And the early church recognized this, and they put the title Christ, Christos, after Jesus. They said, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the entire Hebrew scripture. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the divine Savior. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that for centuries people have tried to figure out just exactly what to do with this Jesus, this fully human, fully God person. If he is indeed who he says he is, and I believe he is, then that means I must either accept him or I must reject him. 
I have to make a choice one way or the other. And the question that we're going to examine today in, in, in pretty good detail is the question of how does he, how does Jesus relate to my life? How does Jesus relate to your life? The question really is, who is Jesus to me? I want you to personalize that. That's the question that Jesus posed to his disciples just before they headed to Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion. Found in Matthew 16, 15. I even made this our big idea for for today because it is a big idea. Jesus was asking them, uh, who do the people out there, who do the people around say that I am? And some said, oh, they think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And, and he looked at them, and I can, I can imagine when I, when I go to Caesarea Philippi and do the teaching on this, uh, uh, I can imagine that as he looked, there were 12 of these disciples now, somehow or other he looked each one in the eye. It was a personal question for each one of them. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And throughout the world today, there exists this undeniable fascination with Jesus among Christians and among non-Christians as well. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and books like The Da Vinci Code, from a couple of years back, didn't cause this fascination with Jesus. They were a result of the fascination that has been with Jesus. They're part of a worldwide movement that's either for or against Jesus. And it's existed for 2,000 years. In the mid-1960s, the Beatles member, John Lennon, boasted that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. And many people wondered if maybe that wasn't true. Although the Beatles were as popular as they were and, and still are, they're getting nowhere close to the universal appeal that still exists today. For this first century carpenter's son from a backwards town in a remote, obscure province that belonged to Rome. For centuries, for centuries now, every word spoken by Jesus has been heard and read and studied and memorized and applied. And no name, no name is spoken out loud more than the name of Jesus whether it's in praise or whether it's in curse. Jesus was born in poverty, but all of the world's chronology is linked to his birth date. Every time you write a check, you're saying Jesus existed 2,017 years ago, before and after Jesus whether or not you believe Jesus is who he says he is, it's hard to argue 
that Jesus was not or is not the most influential and most important person who has ever lived. It's undeniable, isn't it? Jesus has made an incredible difference, an incredible impact on the history of the entire world. But the question that I'm going to ask you today is a little different than that, his impact. I'm going to ask you a very personal question today. And that question is this. What difference, what difference does Jesus make in your life? Or let me put it another way. If Jesus had never lived, would your life be any different? (laughs) Thank you. Because it really doesn't make any difference how much Jesus has impacted the world if he doesn't impact your life. Forget about his impact on the world. His impact is a personal one. At Renovation Vineyard Church, our number one core value, the number one belief that determines everything that we do as a church is this. Jesus matters. Jesus matters. Jesus matters to this world. He matters to this country. He matters to this community. And yes, he matters to this church. Does Jesus matter to your life? I think the answer is a resounding yes. Believer or not a believer. If Jesus didn't matter to your life or mine, we wouldn't still be talking about him today, would we? So as my Savior, Jesus makes a real difference in my life. In three very important ways. And here's the first one. For my past, Jesus offers forgiveness. For my past, Jesus offers forgiveness. Let's be honest. We don't like to think about our past very much, do we? Because for so many of us, our pasts, are filled with mistakes. Mistakes that we've made. Decisions that we've made that were wrong. Actions that we've taken. Things we've done or said. People that we have been with. Mistake after mistake after mistake. But it's not just you. It's it's all of us. You see, as human beings, none of us is perfect. We constantly mess up. And the biblical word for messing up is sin. Sin means missing the mark. Sin means falling short of the goals that God has for you. Sin means doing things that we know God doesn't want us to do. Sin means not doing the things that God wants us to do. And sin always has consequences in our lives, like hurt, like guilt, like shame, like regret. I remember one 
One Sunday I was talking about this concept of sin and forgiveness. And uh, I mentioned something about abortion. And after the service, there were two ladies, older ladies. I'm old, but they were older. Older ladies that came up to me individually and said, I had an abortion when I was a teenager, and I've never been able to forgive myself. And we prayed about the forgiveness that was available to them through Jesus Christ. And both of them accepted his forgiveness. Both of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Both of them were just beaming from then on. Every time you see them in the church, they're beaming. But the most devastating consequence of sin is that it separates us from God. From his presence in your life and, and my life. Now and, and throughout eternity. There's a barrier. Sin in your life and in my life serves as a barrier between God's blessings, God's healings, God's very presence, and my life that I'm living. As a result, when we have messed up, we need to do one of several things to try to remove the consequences of sin from our lives. We've talked about these before, but let me just briefly mention them here. I didn't even leave spaces on your handout for them, but you can fill them in if you want. First of all, what do we do? We try to bury it. We try to bury our sin. We, we just pretend that it didn't happen. It didn't exist. We suppress it. Forget about it. Try to forget about it. Secondly, uh, this is the favorite here, we blame other people for it, don't we? This is the easiest thing to do. It's not my fault. It's their fault. They made me do it. They made me do it. Somebody else jumps off the bridge. Are you going to jump off the bridge too? But the one that we usually end up with is this one. We end up beating ourselves up for it. We play it over and over and over again in our minds. The shame and the guilt and the hurt of our past mistakes that doesn't free you from the consequences of sin. None of those will. No matter how hard we try, we cannot free ourselves from the consequences of our sins. I'm powerless against it. I need help. You're powerless against it. You need help. And there's only one real solution for the mistakes that we've made in our pasts. There's only one real way to escape the consequences. And that solution is the forgiveness of, that God offers us through Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior. Acts 13, 38 says this. <clears throat> Paul's, Paul's speaking and he says, My friends, the message is that Jesus can forgive your sins. 
The law of Moses could not set you free from all your sins, but everyone who has faith in Jesus is set free. You see that? Underline that last sentence. Everyone who has faith in Jesus is set free. Maybe you want to circle everyone. You know what? Everyone is you. And it's me. Everyone who has faith in Jesus is set free from their sins. That verse makes it very clear that I cannot work myself free from sin. Or from the consequences of that sin. Not even by living a good life or being a good person. Believe me, I've tried that. Many of you have tried that too. But Jesus provides freedom from past mistakes. He is the solution to the problem of being separated from God's presence. And that freedom, that solution, only comes from the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's the only way. That's why the passion of the Christ is, that's what the passion of the Christ is all about. That's why the movies created such controversy. For the first time, you really see the significance of sin. And that's what Easter is all about, too. Even though we didn't deserve it, Jesus loved you and loved me so much that he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, that we could have a real relationship with God. Jesus is the bridge between God and us. We no longer have to be separated from God because of the sin that we've committed. And that's God's perfect solution for your troubled past. The question then becomes, okay, what do I have to do to receive this forgiveness today? And the answer is, all I have to do, all that I have to do is admit that I've sinned. Agree with him that I've done things that I should not have done. Agree with him that I haven't done some things that he said I should do. That I've fallen short of God's best for my life. And then, to believe that Jesus really did die for my sins. And that God raised him from the dead. I have to believe that God loved me that much. He loved me so much that there's no other person in the world that I could say loves me anywhere close to the way that he loves me. Once I've admitted that I need God, and once I've come to the point where I believe that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for me, all I have to do is ask God for forgiveness. Ask Him. Ask Him. Asking for that freedom from sin, freedom from regret, freedom from shame, freedom from hurt. And the Bible says that God will forgive us unconditionally. 
Almost every week I say in here, He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care where you've done it. He doesn't care who you've done it with. with. He doesn't care how many times you've done it. He loves you and He wants to forgive you. All you have to do is ask Him. 1 John 1, 9, and this is the New Living Translation, says this. But if we confess our sins to Him, to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. There's another word you might want to underline. Every, or circle it. He didn't say some wrongs, did He? He said every wrong. Every wrong that you've ever committed. You see, today God wants you to experience His forgiveness and His presence. He wants you to forgive yourself. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. And to get on with your life. The life that He has for you. Because when God forgives you, He does it this way. And these things I've also given to you before. There's, there's uh, four of them. When God forgives you, He, he, he forgives you Instantly, the minute you ask, you're forgiven. You don't have to beg. It's done in an instant. Secondly, God forgives you completely. Completely. You don't have to keep going back and asking for forgiveness for that same thing. There's no guilt. There's no regret. Everything is gone. Everything is put away. And number three, God forgives you repeatedly. Because let's face it, you're going to mess up again. I mess up every day. I mess up every hour. I even mess up when I don't know I've messed up. If I come to God with a sincere heart asking for forgiveness, He promises that He'll forgive me each and every time. Isn't that a great promise? And finally, God forgives me or forgives you freely. Freely. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing you can do. Jesus died on the cross because he loves you. Not because of anything you could possibly give him in return. There's nothing you could give him. There's nothing that you could do to add to the equation. He loves you. He forgives you. God forgives you completely, instantly, repeatedly, and freely. I was thinking this week about a, a story that I heard, gosh, I don't know, I, and I tried to find it, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Maybe I just dreamed it, I don't know. But there was a, there was a king, and this was back during the, uh, the Middle Ages. There was a king that was building a big palace, and, and he wanted his palace to be spectacular. I'm thinking maybe like Versailles or something like that. He, he, he wanted his palace to, to rival Versailles. And one of the centerpieces in his palace, in his dining hall, would be this mural, this beautiful mural that would cover the whole wall uh, of his dining hall. And he wanted to, at that time, there, there were not many mirrors. Mirrors were rare. It, it took... It took an artisan to be able to put 
silver on the back of a, a piece of glass in such a way that it would reflect your image clearly. Uh, and, and so he had to order this mirror from some place afar. And uh, he had an artisan, an, an artist come in and do the mural for him. And the artist was to leave a spot right in the middle where the mirror would be. And it would be the centerpiece of this gorgeous mural. And the time came that we were about a week away from the uh, unveiling of this mural at a big party he was going to have. And the mirror arrived, shipped in from some place. And the artist had finished all of his other stuff. He opened and unpacked the mirror, and it was broken into hundreds of pieces. There wasn't time to order a new one. The unveiling was less than a week away. What was he going to do? Well, the artist asked everybody to leave, to clear out. And he started taking those pieces of mirror and placing them strategically on that wall, in the mural, at uh, uh, particular places. And instead of being the perfect mirror that everyone thought would be there, it reflected a myriad of colors, just colors of the rainbow, colors that the rainbow didn't even have. It turned out that mural was more beautiful because the glass had been broken. More beautiful than had it been a perfect mirror. In a perfect mirror, one would only see his reflection. In this myriad of glass, thousands of reflections of light. The artist took something that was broken and made it into something beautiful. And that's the way God is with your life, with my life. Romans 8.28 says that uh, for those who love God, uh, all things, all things work together for good. There's not a thing that has happened to you in your past that God can't use for his good in the future. I don't care what it is. What mistakes you've made, what, what messes you've gotten into. He can use that. He will use that as a matter of fact, I promise. He will use that for his glory in your life. Our lives are broken because of sin. But it's the forgiveness that Jesus offers from the cross that can take all those broken pieces each and every time and put them back together to make something far more beautiful. So don't let the brokenness of your past destroy your present or your future. Allow Jesus to put the broken pieces of your life back together. And all you need to do that is forgiveness. Jesus matters in your life. Here's the second difference that Jesus makes in my life. What difference does he make in my present? For my present, Jesus offers 
significance. Significance. Throughout the ages, philosophers have philosophized, if that's even a word. And people have wondered that there must be something more to life than just living. There must be a greater plan to life. There must be a purpose behind all of this. There's got to be a fullness that goes beyond just everyday existence. When Jesus came, he said that many people live in the dark all of their lives, but that he will show them the light. He says there's a difference between existing and really living, between survival and success and real significance. In John 10.10, Jesus says that much of the world is is arranged to keep us in the dark, to keep us oppressed, to rob us of real life and pure joy. He puts it this way. The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. Jesus said there is more to life than just existing. There's a fullness of life. There's an abundance of life. And when Jesus spoke these words to the hearers that heard him first, they understood that fullness because most of them were either fishermen or farmers. And their lives were lives of toil. The same thing day after day after day with meaningless existence. But Jesus said, there's more to life. There's more to life than just the sun coming up and the sun going down. He said, you can find purpose. You can find significance. You can find a reason for living. I believe in our modern uh, vernacular, he would have said, yeah, there is survival. And yes, there is even success. But there's something that goes far beyond all that, and that is true significance significance of life that's living a life that matters living a life that's not blown here and there by circumstances but a life that's centered a life that's eternal a life that can never be taken away and Jesus said he is the key to that significant life the early church had adopted a metaphor that Jesus used. They love the metaphor of someone who is lost and then is safe and secure. The person who doesn't know Christ is thought of as lost. They roam around aimlessly. They have no road map. They have no certainty about where they're going. But when they find Christ, he saves them and rescues them from that life of uncertainty. And he gives them a life of significance. John 8, 12 says, Jesus said to the people, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be stumbling through darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Jesus matters for my past, 
because he offers forgiveness. Jesus matters for my present because he offers significance. And Jesus matters for my future because he offers eternal life. Eternal life. You see, it's through Jesus Christ and him alone that we can be secure about eternal life. I think one of the common fears that all of humanity has had is the fear of the uncertain, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what the future might hold, the fear of what might happen after we die. And people ask that question over and over. But the Bible teaches very clearly that all of us, all of us are created for eternity. That when we take our last breath here on earth, we'll take our first celestial breath in eternity. The Bible's very clear that you'll spend eternity in one of two places. You'll spend eternity with God in what the Bible describes as heaven, or you'll spend eternity separated from God in what the Bible describes as hell. And the Bible clearly states that there is only one way to eternity in heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. That verse up there, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In John eleven twenty five. In talking to the woman, Jesus says this to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, live, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. Do you believe this? He asked her. In a few weeks, we're going to look at that word in the Apostles' Creed, or that phrase, eternal life. So I'm going to save a little bit for then. But, do you believe? That's what he asked. Do you believe? I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. That's the question for you today. It's the same question that Jesus had for this lady. Do you believe this? What does it take to know for certain that your eternity in heaven is secure? It takes believing. It takes believing. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? It's not about how good you are. It's not about how bad your past has been or how good your past has been. It's not about what you're doing right now. The issue is one of belief. Have you believed? If you're here and you've not believed, maybe, maybe today is the day that you can begin believing. I want to show you some other verses about believing in just a minute. And I want to invite you to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. 
God's only son. And I want to give you a chance to let him become your Lord, your Savior. One of the questions that I hear from believers a lot is, what do you do when you doubt? Somebody last week even asked that. What do you do when you doubt? Well, if you're you're not a believer, I'll tell you that you can become a believer and still have doubts. It's okay. As a matter of fact, I'd say to you, don't let your doubts keep you from becoming a believer. Just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean that you are never going to have any doubts. One of the biggest doubts that many of you have is this question of eternal security. If you believe in Christ... How can you know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? And how can you know for sure that you'll never lose your salvation? Well, there's this... You weren't the first person that thought that up, by the way. There's this theological term that's called doctrine of eternal security. They've been arguing this for ages. And once you step across the line of faith... Once you trust Jesus for your salvation, you will never, ever lose your salvation. If you don't hear that, I mean, don't hear anything else. Once you step across the line of faith, once you trust Jesus for your salvation, you can never, ever lose that salvation. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that deal with this eternal salvation. But I want to give you just two. The first is this. Ephesians 1.13 from God's Word translation says this. You also became believers in Christ. That happened when you heard the message of truth. It was the good news about how you could be saved. When you believed, He marked you with a seal. The seal is the Holy Spirit that he promised. The Spirit marks us as God's own. We can now be sure that someday we will receive all that God has promised. That will happen uh, after God sets all of his people completely free. All of those things will bring praise to his glory. He says... When you believe, when you trust in Jesus Christ alone, God's Son, for your eternal life, for your salvation, it's as if you're placed into God's hand right here. I don't know what what I've got small enough to put in there. Let's see. Placed in here. And then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I would say not just this, but you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And there's no way that anybody is going to jerk that out of God's hands. You're secure in there. We could could look over in Revelation and you'll see that that seal can only be broken by one. And that one is Jesus Christ. So you're secure until the time 
of redemption uh, in heaven. That's one of the verses. The second verse, guess what? It's your memory verse this week. <laughs> Don't you love that? Your memory verse. If you've been around enough, you probably know this one already. Uh, we say the address at the beginning, at the end. Would you read it with me? And then we will memorize it together. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 Let's take something away. Romans 10.9 if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. All right. Give yourself a round of applause. You learned another one. That's what? Uh, one, two, three so far. You got three more to go. And one of these weeks, I'm going to test you on the other ones that you're supposed to already know, so look for that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But ask yourself, do, do I really believe? Do I really believe that? And if I have believed, if you have believed, I should say, if you have believed, then you can be assured. That's the promise. Another one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about our relationship with Jesus Christ is that Jesus paid for our sins. See, the Bible teaches that someone has to pay for your past sins. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. On the cross... Jesus was paying the penalty for your sins. Someone had to die to pay the penalty for your sins. 
all the way back in Genesis, something had to die. Some blood had to be shed in order for our sins to be covered. Either you had to die or Jesus had to die. So Jesus died in your place. And if you believe that, Romans 10, 9, if you believe that, then you're saved. If you are a Christ follower, if you're a believer, God's stamp of ownership is on your life. And when you become a believer, God doesn't just put a lease, a lease on your life. When you say yes to Jesus, it's not like you and God enter into a 12-month lease agreement. And God's going to come in every once in a while and check on you to see, see if everything's okay, see if you've kept your life clean, if cockroaches are out. or he, if, they, if they are, he might extend that lease for another 12 months. God is the creator of the universe. And when Jesus Christ has bought you and God owns you, he owns you for all of eternity. Forever and ever. I mean, we can't even comprehend all of eternity. And nothing can take you out of his hand. The devil can't. Doubt can't. Distraction can't. And you are his. You belong to him for all of eternity. That's why I can say with assurance, for my future, Jesus offers eternal life. Last week we... Uh, looked at living with God as Father. This week we're looking at living with Jesus as Son and Savior. And next week we're going to be talking about living with the Holy Spirit. So when you say yes to Christ, God puts His stamp of ownership on you that can never, ever be taken away. You've been bought and paid for, and God owns you, and you will spend eternity with God And to seal that deal, he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you to change you from the inside out. You see, the whole trinity is at work here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In just a few minutes when we are doing communion, uh, our ministry teams are going to be on either side here. And let's see. And uh, they're there to pray with you about any issue that you may have in your life. At the beginning of the service, I asked the Holy Spirit to come and move. And I don't know. Um, I hope that God has touched you this morning through His Holy Spirit. That maybe something we've said or some song that we sang or some scripture that we read has made an impact on your life. And I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that He is? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? And if you believe that, what are you going to do about it?
I'm going to ask you to come and meet with the ministry team. If you're not sure, if, if that's not clear in your mind, come and meet with them. Let them talk with you and pray with you so that you don't leave here wondering, am I going to spend eternity with God in heaven? After the things I've done, is he going to forgive me? Really? Can he? How can he do that? If you only knew what I've done. And if you're sitting there right now and you feel this itch, it's probably the Holy Spirit saying, get up off your duff and come up here and talk to one of the ministry team. Why don't you all come on up, ministry team, so that uh, they can see who you are. And I think this might be a good thing for you to do even before you come to communion. Come and get that squared away. Or you can come and kneel right up front here. I mean, this is an important, this is the most important decision in your life. Don't take it lightly. I believe in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. See how I worded it here in my new Apostles' Creed. It's different than I learned. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under, under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified. Died. And was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's him. It's he, I should say. It's he who's going to do the judging. He already knows. He already knows. He just wants you to ask for forgiveness. So take that opportunity this morning to, to make that uh, commitment, that decision with him before you leave here.